Amen. Thank you, guys. Girls. We are taking a break from our sermon series today, so it gives you an opportunity over the next few weeks to uh, read ahead in the Bible for those of you who are reading along. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story, which usually means turning in your Bibles to Matthew or Luke, but we are going to be looking at the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to begin reading chapter 12, verse 1. And just a reminder, these are the very words of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman who was was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to understand this text rightly so that we might apply it faithfully for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the book of Revelation is a unique book. Uh, One aspect that makes it unique is it's made up of several different genres. It is a letter. It is also prophetic. It is also apocalyptic. And the author is John, the same author of the Gospel of John. And he has received a revelation from God. And that's why the title of the book is Revelation. The very first word in in the Greek is apocalypsis, where we get our word apocalypse. And so among other things, this means the book is filled with a great deal of imagery, 
and a great deal of figurative language. And so much of the time we want to figure out what does this represent and what does that detail mean? You know, for example, in chapter, in verse three, it says it was a red dragon. And so we want to say, why, why red? Is red significant? You know, is that red because Russia is red or something like that? Right? Uh, it talks about a dragon having seven heads. Why seven? Is that significant? Is that symbolic? Does that represent something? And, and a lot of times, yes. A lot of times we don't know. And, and so much of the time we spend all of our time focusing on these kinds of questions. And we often just kind of miss the main point. Like what's the obvious main point that the author had in mind when he was writing to an actual group of people to receive this letter. And so I want us to focus this morning on the obvious main clear point of the text. And in order to do that, I think it's helpful to recognize who the different characters are in the text. First of all, there's a woman. Verse 1 says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman. So John sees a great sign. What is that? Uh, John likes to use the word Sign. He, he refers to his miracles as signs in the Gospel of John. But, you know, very simply speaking, a sign simply signifies something. So what is the first sign he sees? A woman. What does she signify? What does she represent? She, she represents the people of God. And we're going to come to see that very clearly as we keep going. She's pregnant. And her child that she's pregnant with is the second child, the second character of the story. Look at verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And we'll talk a little bit more about the identity of her child in a few moments. A third character in the story is the antagonist, the bad guy. Every good story has a, a, good, has a bad guy. Here's our bad guy, verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. So here's another sign. What does the dragon signify? He signifies Satan. That's going to become explicitly clear in the text. And then, of course, there's also in verse 7, Michael and the angels. And we'll talk about them. But I want you to notice that there are three scenes, three battle scenes in our text. And I want to talk about these three battle scenes. And then after each battle scene, I'm going to draw out sort of a lesson that I think we can learn from each battle scene. But the first battle scene is the dragon versus the child. Look at verse 4 with me. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, some people think that when his tail sweeps down a third of the stars, that is symbolizing a third of the angels who go with him and become demons. To which I would say, maybe, maybe that's what that means. Maybe that's what it represents. But what is the obvious, clear point? I think the obvious, clear point is he, he's up to no good. And he means to do damage. And, and he's able to. That's another point. He's capable of doing great damage. He successfully sweeps down a third of the stars to the earth. So we have a terrible dragon who's capable of doing damage and wants to do damage. That's the point. And, and here he is, this awful image of this dragon standing before this woman so that when she gives birth to her child, the dragon might devour this infant baby. It's a terrible image. It's interesting to contrast this image with the image of a hospital room where you know, a mother's about to give birth to a baby and it's so sterile and so clean 
And there's doctors and there are nurses and they're dressed in scrubs and gloves and, and everything is just, just right. You know, at least you want it to be just right. And I remember visiting a baby in the NICU several years ago and they said to me, you got to wash your hands first. I said, okay. And they said, you got to take off your ring too. I said, take off my ring. Why don't I take off my ring? And they said, well, that's one of the dirtiest parts of your body, your ring. I said, oh goodness. I didn't know that. But we went, no germs, you know, germ-free room or as much as possible. We want it to be clean. We want it to be sanitary. And uh, when, when my second child, when, when Annabelle was born, uh, the doctor turned to me and said, do you want to deliver her? And I said, I'm sorry? <laughs> he said, do you want to deliver her? I, said, I don't even like to go get blood drawn from the hospital. I'm not interested in delivering a baby. And he said, oh, come on. Uh, Good night. I said, well, let me ask you this. If I do this, can I pay you less money? (laughs) And he said, no, you still have to pay me the same amount. I said, well, then you're going to deliver the baby. (laughs) Give me a significant discount. I might consider it. (laughs) But if I got to pay the same amount, no way. I want my child to have the greatest opportunity for success, especially (laughs) on her first day of life. Right? You do that. I'll provide the moral support. Uh, but notice the contrast. We, we, we want everything just right, just perfect, clean, doctors, all this kind of stuff, and versus this picture, an awful picture. It's hard to even look at it, isn't it? Like, we love this picture in the lower left-hand corner. We're used to it. We like it. But, but the dragon? You know, it's just like, that's just not right. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't feel right. There's not supposed to be a dragon at the, the birth of Jesus, but that's the picture we get from Revelation 12. It's the Christmas story according to Revelation 12. And by the way, this is the storyline of the whole Bible. And I think that's why John includes it in, his, in, his, in the Revelation. It's, it's the storyline going back to the very beginning when God promises there's going to be conflict between Eve and her son, and the serpent. You remember one of the most important verses of the Bible? Genesis 3.15. Listen to it again. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from the very beginning, there's going to be conflict between the serpent and the woman's offspring. And God's making a promise. She's going to have a son Who's going to crush you? Who's going to crush your head? And all along, the big question is, who is it? Who is the son of Eve who's going to crush the serpent's head? And God's people are waiting, anticipating. Where is he? Where is this Christ child, son of Eve, who's going to crush the serpent's head? And it's not only God's people who are waiting for this important birth, but the serpent is waiting for this important birth. In fact, look at Revelation 12, 9. He's referred to as the ancient serpent. Right? The dragon in Revelation 12 is the ancient serpent from Genesis 3. And all along the storyline, not only are God's people waiting for the birth of this important child, the dragon is waiting so he can devour the child. Why? So he can nullify the promise that God made that the child's going to crush the serpent's head. So from the very beginning, you've got two brothers and one of them murders the other one. What is that? That is a threat to God's promise. If you take out the the seed of the woman, you take out the son, you take out the threat of of the promise of God. What's happening when Pharaoh says, well, I want to have all the Hebrew baby boys killed? It's a threat to the promise. You, you, You take them all out successfully, and the promise is gone. The promise is nullified. And of course, one 
is provided and escapes miraculously, named Moses. It's the same storyline when Herod hears about these wise men coming to town, talking about this king, born king of the Jews. And what does Herod say? I want to have all the baby boys, two years old and younger, in the vicinity of Bethlehem, killed. What is that? That is the dragon standing before the woman so that when she gives birth, the dragon might crush this child. Um, and, And who's the child? Of course, we know it's Jesus Christ. He's the child who's born. He's the child of Revelation 12. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So this is what I'm calling the Christmas story in Revelation right here. It's one verse, very short. No angels, no shepherds, no wise men. It doesn't even tell us anything about Jesus' miracles. He performed miracles. It doesn't even say He died. It's, the, it's the very much the Cliff Notes version. He was born. He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You say, what is that about? That's just simply referencing Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, a kingship psalm, talking about God's son, God's king. So here are the authors using the language. He was born. He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then he was caught up to God. What does that mean? That's referring to his ascension and his session, his, when he was seated at the right hand of God. Jesus accomplished his mission. He rose back to the Father, was seated at the right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore, the point is this. He won. He succeeded. He was victorious. The scene won. The dragon versus the child. The dragon loses. The child wins. That's the point. And so we normally think of Christmas as this kind of nice, neat story. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. And and I want to make the argument that it's right for us to be sentimental about this picture of Jesus and His mother. And it's right for us to sing sentimental songs. And it's right for us to be sentimental around this time of year. It's a good thing. So if you're feeling the sentimentality right now, wonderful. I'm so glad. But I also want to encourage you, don't forget that there's also more going on. There's more behind the scenes. Uh, There's a warfare. There's a battle raging. There's a dragon there's a dragon at the nativity scene, and we don't normally think about that. I don't think I've, I'm yet to see a nativity scene that has a dragon in it. And so, therefore, there's none that are consistent with Revelation 12. You know, somebody needs to come up with this uh, Revelation nativity scene and perhaps market it. I think young boys would love it. You know, <laughs> Put a dragon, a nasty-looking dragon, and any boy's going to go for that. right? But I, I want us to consider... What can we learn from this scene, this battle scene of the dragon versus the child? What's a lesson we can learn, we can take away so that we can be confident in the battle that rages today? And I just want to highlight, I think we learned something and we see something of God's humility. God's humiliation, and that should encourage us in the battle. Notice in the passage, the woman represents the people of God, and the child is identified as her baby. Who is the child? The child is identified as the child of the woman, the child of the people of God. The the, the child is not identified as having a divine origin. At least that's not his primary. That's not primarily what's emphasized in the text. Now, I'm not arguing that Jesus doesn't have a divine origin. He certainly does. And there are some texts that emphasize that, like John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He certainly has a divine origin, but there are some texts that emphasize his human origins. Matthew and Luke, for example, provide us with these human genealogies as they talk about the birth of Jesus. Why? They're saying he's a son of David. He's a son of Abraham. He's a son of Adam. He's the son of Eve who crushes the serpent's head. And so throughout church history, the church has affirmed both of these. He has a divine origin. He has a human origin. He's always been God, always has been, always will be. The Son of God has always existed with God and is God. But at a certain point in human history, what we call Christmas or the incarnation, the the Son of God added to His divine nature, human nature. And so one way that theologians state this is remaining what He was, He became what He was not. Remaining what He was, God, He became something that He was not, namely a man, the God-man. And so he's, he's both in. He's fully God, fully man. And, and I want us to consider the fact that God did this for us because he loved us, because he cared for us. He became a vulnerable baby for us. Didn't give up deity, remained God, but took on humanity and did it for us because he cares for us. And the accuser, Satan is referred to as the accuser in chapter 12, verse 10. The accuser of the brothers, Satan, One of the ways he likes to work and accuse us is he likes to get us to think, do you really think God cares about you? You know, you're in the battle, you're weary, you're tired. Perhaps some of you are considering giving up. Why keep trying to be faithful? You know, does God really care? Does it really do any good? Does anybody see? Does anybody notice? Why? That's the work of the accuser. The accuser speaks lies and and, and gets us to think things like, Perhaps God doesn't care. And why continue? And what's the benefit? And we are reminded here, perhaps you are growing weary in the battle right now. Perhaps you are feeling a temptation to sort of throw in the towel. What difference does it make? And I just want to remind you, here's what we learn. Look to the Christmas story and be reminded of the extent to which God was willing to go for you. He cares so much about you. He added to His divine nature, human nature, to become a baby, to make Himself knowable to you in order to lay down His life for you. That's the extent to which God loves you and cares for you. So let that motivate you. Let God's humility in coming in the form of a baby, let that be the motivation for you to keep going, keep being faithful, not throw in the towel, but keep being faithful in the battle that continues today. Now let's, let's transition and talk about the second battle that we see, the second battle scene that we see here in this text. And I'm going to refer to it as the dragon versus the angels. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the scene changes. It's no longer the dragon versus the child because the child won. Now it's the dragon versus the angels. And one of the angels' names is given to us, Michael, the the head angel. Michael and his angels versus the dragon and his angels. Why are the dragon's angels called angels? Because they originally were angels and became demons. And just like we want to know all the details of the book, what does red mean? Why seven heads? What does that mean? So another impulse we have is we want to know the chronology. 
When did this happen? And when did it happen relative to that? And when did it happen relative to this? We want the chronology because we love our timelines and our charts. Right? Some of you are already thinking in terms of your chart. When does this happen? I want to know when. Right? And, uh, and by the way, there's a lot of charts out there. And a lot of them, they all conflict with each other to some extent. Right? And so I don't think John's point here is like, I'm trying to give you a chronology so you can go create a chart. I don't think that's what's behind him writing about this, right? I think there's a bigger picture, a bigger point. What's the point? The point is not, when did the battle happen? Because there's a lot of debate about that, right? And, and if we needed to know, we would know with certainty, with clarity. And so I'm fine. You can hold whatever position you want to on when this particular battle happens. But whatever you do, don't miss the point. What's the point? The dragon and his, his demons are defeated by Michael and the angels, God's angels. That's the point. Notice how many times the phrase, he was thrown down. Four times in verses 9 and 10, he was thrown down. Why? Trying to motivate us to realize the dragon has been defeated. Thrown down. Look at three times in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What's the point? God wins. He's in control. It's his power. That's the lesson. God is all-powerful. He's powerful. Satan is the most formidable enemy of God and God's people. And Satan is defeated. And it doesn't even say that he's defeated by God. It says he's defeated by God's creatures, creatures that God created, angels, the angels of God are powerful enough to defeat the dragon. How much more so God Himself able to defeat the dragon? So this is not a scenario where God is just merely the most powerful. He's all-powerful. It's not good versus evil, 50 versus 50%. Who's going to win? We're not sure. We're sitting back saying, boy, I sure do hope the dragon gets defeated. No, the dragon's been defeated. God's in control. It's not even like 95-5. God did have 100%. He gave some of it up. And now we just kind of hope that 5% doesn't become a bigger number. Right? No, he's, he's in total control. All-powerful. He's not just most powerful. He's all-powerful. Think about that. All power belongs to him. So why does it sometimes maybe feel like or seem like? Why is it hard to believe that? And I think the answer is partly because of God's humiliation. When you think about God coming in the form of a flesh, and when you think about a baby lying in a manger, you know, crying out for his mama, it's kind of hard to say, there's the all-powerful God lying right there in the manger. It's like, that's a little baby. Little babies are the opposite of all-powerful, right? They have all kinds of needs. And so it's hard for us in our minds, I think, to kind of wrap our heads around this. And rightly so. It's the great mystery of the Christian faith. How does the God who is all-powerful and need nothing and present everywhere, become a little baby who's totally dependent on his mom and his dad. Wow. It's incredible. And when you think about the image of a little baby born and a dragon standing before the baby ready to devour it, I don't know about you, but it's like, well, surely the dragon's going to win that. How could the dragon not win? If it's the dragon versus the child, and the child is a little baby, and the dragon is powerful and can knock down a third of the stars to the earth, and he's big, nasty dragon with seven heads, 
How does a dragon not win that? Right? And, and, and I think this is, this is what's so incredible. The answer is, this is how God demonstrates he's all-powerful. He writes himself into the story as a baby who defeats the dragon. If we were writing the story, I don't think there's any way that's the way we would write it. It's the opposite of the way we would do things. If there was a nasty dragon and we wanted to defeat the dragon, we would write ourselves into the story as a bigger dragon. You know, there, Then there was a bigger dragon that could defeat the bad dragon. And the bigger dragon won because he was bigger and badder and stronger and smarter. And so we outsmarted the bad dragon. That's how we would think. That's what our movies are made of. And God does it just the opposite. He's like, how am I going to defeat the dragon? I'm going to come to earth as a baby. Why? To demonstrate just how powerful I am. To show my wisdom, to put my wisdom and my power on display to show that I can defeat evil and defeat the dragon in this way. And in the fullness of time, He came. And the question is this, will we believe Him? Will we take Him at His word? Will we trust verse 5 when it says, the child will rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Do we believe that or do we not? Do we believe Jesus is the king who will rule all the nations one day with a rod of iron? Because when we look around, let's be honest, it sure does seem like evil is winning. There seems to be a lot more cases where evil seems to be winning than good. And let's be honest, isn't it our instinct to say if good's going to win, then we need to be stronger, we need to be louder, we need to be smarter, We need to fight it so we can win, and we need to fight it according to its own terms. Isn't that the way the world thinks? Isn't that the way the flesh thinks? We want to defeat evil. We've got to be bigger, stronger, louder than it. And I just want to point out, that's not God's way. That's not God's method. He says, I'm going to defeat the dragon by coming as a humble little baby. Why? To demonstrate my power, my authority over this. But it's hard because... When you read the headlines, it sure does suggest that evil is winning. And I want to point out to you that when John wrote this letter to the first to his original audience, he was writing it to an audience of people who were also reading the headlines and also feeling like, boy, it sure does seem like evil is winning. In fact, they were experiencing it to such an extent that they were being killed because of their Christian faith. The Roman Empire was literally killing their brothers and their sisters and their friends and their moms and their dads. And John is writing a letter to a group of people who are being persecuted, physically persecuted for their faith. And he's writing them. Why? To tell them what? You guys need to be louder, stronger. No, keep trusting. God is in control. Keep trusting him. Keep submitting to him. Uh, he, keep trusting in verse five. The child is the king who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He's not merely the most powerful. He's all powerful. Keep trusting verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So what lesson do we learn? Keep trusting him. Keep looking to his king. Keep making sure that you're submitted to King Jesus. He wins in the end. God will win in the end. That's the point. And this brings us to the third battle scene that I want to highlight from this text, and that is the dragon versus the woman. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So here's the good news. Satan has been removed from heaven. Heaven is free of the dragon. And all God's people said, Amen. Here's the bad news. Guess where the dragon's been thrown down to? The earth. And guess who's still on the earth? The woman. And who does a woman represent? The people of God. So here we are on the earth with the dragon. That's why he says, woe to the earth and woe to the sea. And the dragon, by the way, is furious. Why? Because he's been defeated. He's been defeated by the child. He's been defeated by the dragons. So he's 0 for 2. And now he's going after the woman. And the place where this happens is called the wilderness. Is that significant? Is there any biblical imagery of a wilderness? Absolutely. What is the wilderness? The wilderness is the place where God's people are tested. And the wilderness is the place where God provides for His people. God provides for His people in the wilderness. And we see God providing for the woman, for the people here in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, I know your instinct is, tell me what time and times and half a time, what does that mean? A lot of people think that's three and a half years. Why is that significant? A lot of different opinions on that too. I think one clear point is this, it's limited. It's three and a half years. It's defined. It's limited. It doesn't go on forever. The wilderness doesn't last forever. God is in control. He tells us ahead of time how long it's going to last. And the point is, it's limited. And the point is, He provides for us while we're in this limited wilderness. He provides. What does He provide? It says He provides eagle's wings. Where does that come from? Exodus 19.4. God says, I bore you up on on wings of the eagle. So he provides for the woman. He provides eagle wings for her. We also see him providing for the woman in verses 15 and 16. When the dragon pours out water from his mouth like a river to flood her, to kill her, destroy her, and God provides and opens up the earth and the earth swallows the water. And what's the point? God God is providing. God's provision for his people on the earth in the midst of the battle. That's the point. And it's good for us to know the more God provides for His people, the more furious the dragon becomes toward God's people. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. I want you to notice, how are God's people described in verse 17? This is a good definition. Who are God's people? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon is not concerned with people who do not keep the commandments of God. The dragon is not concerned with people who do not hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's going after the people who keep the commandments of God, and he's going after the people who hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, God's people. And whether we realize it or not, the battle continues today, and the enemy is real, and he's raging. 
after people who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the question is this, will we be faithful in the battle? Will we be faithful? Will we be those who are described, like verse 17 describes God's people, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? And the good news is we can be confident in the battle because of God's provision for us in the battle. He provides for us. Bad news, we're in a battle. Good news, God provides for us. And the way that we defeat the dragon and conquer the dragon is the exact same way God's people did in the first century and they have ever since. And verse 11 is the key verse that tells us how they conquered the dragon. Verse 11 is the verse, if you're going to memorize one from this passage, here it is. Verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony For they loved not their lives even unto death. First of all, they conquered the the dragon. How? By the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? Well, go back to scene one. Remember scene one, the dragon versus the child, and we said the child won, but we also said it was the Cliff Notes version. He was born, he'll rule, he ascended. But there's more to the story. We know that because we have the rest of the Bible. The child grows up and is killed. The child dies a brutal death. In other words, the dragon successfully kills the child. Hey, wait a minute. I thought the dragon got defeated. How can the dragon kill the child and yet still get defeated? That seems like the child got defeated. Well, we've read the rest of the story, right? Three days later, the child comes back from the grave. And and the Bible tells us, you read all of it, this was actually the plan. This was God's plan to send His child to be born, to grow up an obedient life, to go to the cross to die. He was born to die. That was all a part of the plan. And to conquer death and three days later rise from the grave. So yes, the child dies. And yes, it seems like the dragon defeats him, but it was all a part of the plan. And it was actually through the child's death and resurrection that the dragon gets defeated. And death gets defeated. So that's how the child defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection. And the woman defeats the dragon in the same way. The woman has to have the blood of the Lamb applied to her. And that's the question for you and me this morning. Do you have the blood of the Lamb applied to you? That's God's provision for you in the battle. You're in the battle. It's brutal. There's a dragon. He's real. You will die. Here's the question. Do you have God's provision for you in the battle? Do you have God's provision for you as you stand before the dragon? Say, now what's the provision again? It's the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb has to be applied to you, and if the blood of the Lamb is applied to you, the dragon can't defeat you. He can kill you. You can die. You probably will die, actually. Right? But if you have the blood applied to you, death is not the end. You live. You stand again, just like Jesus stood again. This is what it means when it says, they conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. But notice the second way they conquered Him. Verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? Satan's goal is to keep and prevent as many people as possible from hearing about this provision, hearing about this good news, hearing about the blood of the Lamb and having it applied to them. His goal is to try to keep us silent and keep us from going out. So how do we defeat him? How do we conquer the dragon? We conquer the dragon by going out 
and telling as many people as we can about this provision so that they might have the provision applied to them so that they might become God's people and conquer the dragon as well. And so I just feel compelled to make a plug one more time for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 100% of these dollars are going overseas to missionaries who are on the front lines. And many of them are in places where the gospel is not. So the dollars we're sending are going to the front lines of the warfare where the gospel is not, and they are there trying to make the gospel known. And so it's a, it's a great investment of your money to support these folks. And I also want to I feel compelled to make a plug that it's possible that God's calling you to go overseas, to go to the mission field, and to be right there on the battle lines, to be in places where the gospel is not and to be planting churches in those places, defeating the dragon, advancing the kingdom of God by telling people about the provision that God has made for them through the blood of the Lamb. But think about this interesting irony. It was their testimony that was getting them killed. It was the fact that they were Christians testifying to Christ that got them killed, and yet John's telling us it was their testimony that allowed them to defeat the dragon. Wait, which one is it? If it's their testimony that's getting them killed, isn't the dragon winning? And aren't they losing? And he said, no, no, no. Remember, it is not death to die. If you have the blood of Jesus applied to you, death's not the end. The dragon doesn't win. They conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by their going and telling and testifying to Jesus. And they weren't afraid to die because they believed in the truth that if the blood of Jesus was applied to them, they live. And the dragon gets conquered. And that's why I love this phrase in verse 11. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The NIV says it like this. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They didn't shrink back in the face of death. They didn't love their lives that much. Their greatest concern was not in losing their lives. Their greatest concern was in faithfulness to Christ. And if faithfulness to Christ meant losing their lives, they were willing to do it. And that's how they gained their lives, and that's how they conquered the dragon. And that's how you and I conquer the dragon as well. So I hope you see there's a lot more going on with the Christmas story than shepherd and angels and wise men and even Mary and Joseph. It's about warfare. It's about a battle. It's about a battle that continues today, and we are in the midst of it. But have no fear, we can can be faithful and we can conquer the dragon the same way that God's people have since the first century. And that is, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Let's pray.